The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. Today, we're going to be talking about a tough topic, suicide prevention And also the aftermath of suicide. What happens to the family? What happens to the friends? And how do they get through it? My guest is Mr. Carl David. He is a member of a family that has had an art gallery for four generations now. And he is himself, in addition, a photographer and a musician, among other things. Recently, he wrote a book, Bader Field, How My Family Survived Suicide, and we'll be talking a lot about that today. Hi, Carl. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Virginia. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, it's really great to have you. Um, I am expecting to learn a lot. This sounds like quite an amazing story. Maybe I should let you tell how it begins. Well, the book I wrote is called Baderfield, How My Family Survived Suicide, and I wrote it originally as homage to my dad who died at the age of 58, only eight years after my brother took his life. And as the decades went on in writing this book, because it took a long time, I had to go back and relive a lot of painful days, weeks, months. And, um, you know, it it became more of a nonfiction family saga about how we all dealt with the loss of my brother, how we got through it. I mean, you never get over it. You only learn to live with it as best you can. So I wrote this book, and and my kids weren't yet born, and um, I wanted them to know how incredible my father was, but also at the same time uh, that this is an act that causes a permanent wave of wrath on a family, you know, who survives it. And um, it just it took a long time, and there were times that I would put the book down for you know a week, a month, even a year at a time because I just I couldn't deal with it anymore. And you know, my wife would tell me if it's too painful, don't do it, and Yet there was this thing inside me that gnawed at me that just kept saying, I've got to finish this book. I've got to get this out there. It might help save a life someday or help someone else who's gone through it. And I really wanted something that would memorialize my my father and my brother. And, um, you know, I'm glad I did it. It just took a long time. And every every time I do one of these interviews, it brings it right back to the forefront. I'm back in 1965 in October and reliving it. But... You know, that's the price you pay when you have this thing that lives inside you that's become emblematic of who you are. You have to do something with it. And if you don't, then you've wasted an opportunity where you could have helped someone. So October 65, that's when your brother killed himself? Yes. And how old were you? I was 16. He was 22. Wow, that's young. That's young. So you mentioned a wave of wrath 
I don't know whether that was the first reaction or that came later. I would think shock would be what comes first. Um, who, who found your brother? Yeah, my father did. Um, he actually took his life in the gallery um, up on oh. the fourth floor. And oh. I, I don't know how my father lived through that. Did anybody in the family have a clue that anything like this might happen? No. No, Bruce was a very, you know freewheeling spirit and he was happy at least we thought he was and obviously he had some demons uh, that he held within um, and held them pretty close to the vest because there were no signs there were no notes there was nothing I mean it just blindsided us as a family and um, we didn't see it coming but you're confident that it was a suicide oh absolutely yeah yeah there was no question about that okay so I cannot imagine that experience um you know what happened in the first few days what what did the members of your family do well as you said we were in shock i mean this was the farthest thing from my mind i had been at the uh, morning assembly at school in high school and was called up to the stage by the principal saying there's been an emergency You, you need to go home and my brother did not come home the night prior so I figured maybe he was in a car accident or something. We didn't know. It was completely out of character for him not to come home. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to stay home that day. My parents said, no, you know, go to school. Um, you know, everything will be fine. Well, so we all thought uh, and feared otherwise. And I, I drove home that day. I mean, I must have made it to my house in about six minutes um, and walked in the door. And my eldest brother told me that Bruce had taken his life, said he killed himself. And I just almost fell to the floor. I, I had not anticipated, expected, or, or even fathomed anything like that. And I just, our whole world turned black. I mean, my mother had just gotten out of the hospital after having a hysterectomy. She was in bed. And uh, we just, we were in a state of shock, disbelief, and Unreality. I mean, uh, that's the best way I can describe it. This was just mm-hmm. so far from anything we'd ever known. Um, it just didn't seem real. Yeah, I, that, that's how I imagine I would feel in those circumstances. Did your brother leave any note or any clues about why he did this? No, there was no note, uh, nothing in hindsight or foresight that would have indicated anything was going on. The only thing we did hear um, later on, I must have been several months later, that he had been going to uh, Temple University Night School, and someone who was in his class had overheard um, his inquiry about suicide uh, to the professor. I don't know what the course was or what they were talking about, but, you know, that was a, um, a piece of information that it, it led nowhere, but in retrospect it doesn't really matter because it wouldn't have brought him back. But it does give some light on, obviously, he was thinking about it. Yeah. So every, But really, everything remains a complete mystery, which I think must make it even harder to deal with than if you had some idea what led to this. That's true. I mean, there's no real thing known as closure in a situation like this, but... If we had had some information as to why, then maybe you put part of the puzzle to bed. Um, it doesn't change things, but it, it gives you some degree of clarity, I guess. But there's never any closure. I mean, it's just it's always there. Mm-hmm. You mentioned one older brother. Did you have other siblings? Yes. Uh, Bruce was the middle brother. I've, I've got an older brother 
who was uh, nine years older than myself. Bruce was six years older. And um, Alan, who's uh, my eldest brother, is still with us today, thank God. Mm-hmm. So when, how and when did people begin to be able to do anything to process this kind of trauma? It took a long time. Um, you know, we, we banded together as a family and our, our the rest of our family, cousins and aunts and uncles, and everybody came over to the house, grandparents, who were, you know, whoever was alive at that point. Um, I, you know, it just it was one of these things where we just did everything we could to kind of hold it together, and friends would come over, and it was just a bizarre time. I mean, it really was. It was just like something out of the twilight zone, and it took a long time, you know, for us to to recover to any degree. I mean, I was home probably for two weeks before I went back to school. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the strange things that occurred to me when I was back at school were the, the voices, whether they were real or, or imagined. You know, when kids would walk down the hallway and look at you, and you, you, you hear the, that's the kid whose brother killed himself. And I, I guess I just didn't imagine it. I guess there must have been some that I heard the whispers because it sort of stuck with me, you know, but that mm-hmm. stigma is something that you carry with you in those days. I mean, I was 16 years old. I was a teenager. And that felt to you like a stigma. It not did. just like not, not just like it was raising something that you'd really rather not think about, but actually like it cast some shadow on you. Yeah, it did. I mean, it was like, almost like casting aspersions on me, um, and, you know, because in the 60s, that was not that it's any different today. The act is still horrific, but that was something that was looked upon as something that was very ugly um, and, you know, some kind of, uh, I, I, I don't know, I'm not sure how to describe this, but it was something that people would look the other way. You know, they wouldn't talk about it openly. It was an act that was despicable and it was, uh, it was looked down upon. Um, yeah, and I understand that. I mean, it's not something that, that would not look be t- looked down upon, but it it, it had a, a stigma about it that was very negative. Okay, is that still true today? You think it's probably very similar for the relatives of suicides today? I think today there's much more compassion. People, you know, with the awareness of suicide and how many people take their lives, that there's there's more compassion for the survivors. Um, and, and not any kind of judgment or, or criticism. You know, um, I think I think it's a different world today. I think that today mm-hmm. you're, you're viewed if you get you know help, uh, psychiatric help or, or with a psychologist that it's healthy. You know, you want to get better, and um, instead of what used to be looked at as uh, oh he goes to a psychiatrist he's sick you know that kind of thing, and you know that's changed. So I think the whole perception of suicide has changed. It's still something that needs to be talked about, it needs to be expressed, and it needs to be out there so people are aware, which is one of the reasons I do all these shows, to raise awareness so that maybe it'll, it'll keep one person from taking their life, realizing the effect it's got on the survivors and that, you know, they're not alone. There's help out there for them today and that they're loved and whatever dark cloud is over them, there's a better answer than taking your life. Did your parents talk in your hearing about 
their feelings about it, feeling like they'd failed as parents or feeling guilty? No, not initially. Um, for a while, we didn't we didn't just talk about it. We just you know held each other and then we cried. And when we started to come out of it, um, we talked about Bruce, but we talked about the good times because uh, those are the things that you keep with you. Okay, so that's something to counteract the darkness. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we knew you know that they were going to have feelings of guilt. It was inevitable. I think my father ate himself up thinking he should have seen it. Um, I, I, I know in my heart that he felt responsible in that sense that he should have been aware, but there was really nothing to be aware of, you know, but as a parent, I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So how long was it before, when did you start writing the book? I think I started writing this book in, oh God, maybe the middle 1980s. Okay, so that's maybe 20 years after the suicide. Yeah. Okay. And you you did not yet have children at that point? Well, you know what? Actually, now that I think about that, um, our oldest son, Sean, was born in 1976, and Brett was born in 1980. So it's possible that I had started it earlier than that. And there were so many times that I put it away because I just couldn't deal with it that um, – Honestly, I've blocked it out. I don't remember exactly okay. when. <laughs> okay. And when was it published? It was published at the end of 2008 and 2009, in the beginning of 2009. And it was funny because when it was first published, it was titled Bader Field because that was the last place I saw my father, and I felt that was an appropriate title to start the story. Well, you know, a little while later, we realized that the book wasn't selling because it had an identity crisis. No one, unless you were from the area, no one knew what Baderfield was. Was it a baseball field, an airfield? Uh, was it a, a naval base? I mean, you know, I mean, from the area of Philadelphia and Atlantic City, and this was just in Atlantic City, New Jersey, you'd know it. But we decided it needed some other brand to make it come to life, to realize there was a story here. So we subtitled it, How My Family Survived Suicide, and then it had a great awareness after that. I mean, people... People knew what it was about. There was a story in there, and I was like, oh, look at the cover, and there's something going on here. I've got to read this. Got it. So then sales picked up when you yes. established the subtitle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, do, do people talk with you much about the book? Do you do book readings? I haven't done any readings. I've done some excerpts in different interviews, but... Um, I've used them mostly as a tool to reach out, you know, to people uh, to get it out there. What I'm really trying to do, and it's an epic battle, but I'm not going to quit, is get it into the, the school systems, at least the high schools, so that if, you know, for a mandatory reading, it would be great because I think it would really have a huge impact and in a positive way. And I'm also working to try and have a film made, which is another epic endeavor, but I'm going to do it. It may, it may take me a while, but I'm going to get there. And I don't know if it'll be a documentary, a short film, or a major feature, but as a visual venue, I think today in, in the world of, you know, people don't read, they play games, and they're on their their um, mobile devices all the time, but they watch movies. And, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as a film, in some kind of form, I think it would have a tremendous positive Im- impact. I've, I've been told that it would be the next ordinary people, only more so. 
And, you know, it's, it's an interesting story. It's an inspirational story um, about how we all got through this and, and how, you know, spirit lives on and we just have to go on. I mean, we keep our brother in our hearts and, and um, he's with us in everything we do. I see. When, when were the first steps of feeling like we're beginning to come out of this, we're beginning to be able to go on with our lives and really pay attention to living our lives, not pay attention to remembering the one we've lost? Well, it took months, and I know that as every it's a process, and every day that goes by, you get a little bit stronger, and then something kicks you in the gut, and you're right back to where you were. But, you know, it, it's, our, it's our duty and our obligation to live our lives to the fullest, and my brother would never have wanted us not to. That, that was not his intention by any means, and I think if he'd realized the impact it would have had on us, he would never have, you know, for whatever reason, he would have never have done what he did. So it, it took a while. It took months. And, you know, and then it takes years. I remember the first time my father came back into the gallery, and this was, I guess, I don't know how many weeks later, but he came in and he slammed the door and he was raging, you know, behind his sunglasses. And, it, and you could hear the rever- reverberation of the front door slam through the whole building. And yep, I knew how tough it must have been for him to even set foot back in this place again. So yeah. it, it, it took a long time. Did everybody in the family have that kind of anger at some point? Oh, sure. I mean, it's a natural reaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother used to, to say, you know, why, why, why did you do this to us? Why would you do this? You know, and anger and, and sadness are um, opposite sides of the same coin. So you feel the sadness, then you get angry, and then you feel sad, and then you get angry, and you feel sad, and, you know, you work your way through this, this um, complexity of emotions. And... If it weren't for, well, I'll, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later, but if it weren't for psychiatric intervention, I don't know that I would have made it. Okay. That's a pretty powerful statement. Um, so psychiatric intervention, how long was it before the family, any members of the family started to seek that sort of help? Well, I think my parents saw it right away. Uh, they had a good friend who was a, a psychiatrist who was a family friend, and, and uh, I know they had conferred with him, and um, I think he really helped them to, to kind of claw their way back to life. I had just graduated from, well, I was in high school at that point when Bruce took his life, but when I graduated from college, I went to Oglethorpe College in Atlanta. It was 1970, and I came back and... Um, I had opportunities to do all kinds of other things, but I joined in the family business. But I was having a really difficult time emotionally. And because when I was away at school, I just kind of fantasized, if you will, that my brother was away on an army mission, you know, special ops, covert, whatever. And that's why we didn't hear from him. So I was blocking all these feelings out, you know, because I I didn't really feel the pain and I, I didn't want it to be as real as it really was. And I started to have episodes when I got home of being out of my body and not in a good way. I mean, I just, you know, and it would happen randomly and I had no idea what was going on, but my parents had the foresight to see and the insight to see that I was an emotional mess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was taking um, Librium just to quell the feelings and, you know, they got me um, to the same psychiatrist who happened to have been a psychoanalyst and he said, look, I can't treat you, but... He said, you're a perfect candidate for, um, you know, a good colleague of mine who's a, a psychoanalyst. 
so I went to see him, and he, you know, after the first session, he said, listen, he said, you know, it's going to take a while. He said, you're, you're a great candidate for psychoanalysis. And I, I panicked because I, all I could think of was Woody Allen being in psychoanalysis for 14 years at the my, time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I thought I was, oh, my God, I must be really sick. So he said, no, 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 no. He, he clarified that for me. He said, you have to be really in touch with your feelings, on top of your feelings. You have to be super bright. And you have the stuff that, you, you know, that will get you through this. It's a great therapy. And I think it's perfect for you, and it'll make you well. So I did it. I mean, it took four years, four days a week, and um, it literally saved my life. I, I learned how to deal with my feelings so that when situations would come up, I could understand them, I could feel my emotions instead of suppressing them. Because when you suppress your emotions, they're going to come up one way or another, and they're gonna, you're going to have a, a body reaction because the emotional body absolutely runs the physical body. Oh, um, yeah, they, they leak out. We're going to abruptly go to break here, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, Visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. 
I'm talking today with Mr. Carl David, who is the author of Bader Field, How My Family Survived Suicide. Before the break, we were talking about how important help from a psychiatrist, a psychoanalyst was. Um, You said that that really saved your life. It did save my life. Um, You know, it took a long time, and it was the one thing in my life that I am ever so grateful to have had because I was really on a uh, crash and burn course in my life and um, I had no way to figure out how to get out of it. And it was just purely simple of dealing with my emotions and, and, you know, going back and reliving everything and undoing it. And my, my doctor had told me it's like a big complex ball of twine. You take off one little piece of thread at a time until you get to the core. And when you get to the core, you can, get to the root of all the causes and just let it dissipate. And I think the expression he had used was that the ancestors of the past become the ghosts of the future. I may have that backward, but it's something to that effect that these things that haunt you um, go away. Got it. Did your brothers also seek psychiatric help? He did. Uh, we, We all did. We all had medical intervention. Um, you know, this is suicide is something that's so big and so enormously powerful that you just can't do it on your own. To survive this, you really need help. And I always tell people, you know, if you're feeling despondent, you're feeling depressed, you feel like it's the end of the world, go talk to somebody. You know, talk to a bartender, a friend, a family member, anybody, a stranger. You know, call 911. Um, go to the hospital. Go go anywhere you can and be among people and just let yourself be vulnerable and and let your feelings out because it's a known fact that, you know, if you talk to someone for 10 minutes or if someone talks to you for 10 minutes, they can generally talk you out of the suicidal mission that you're on. There's an organization called Contact, which is on the Upper East Coast near, well, near New Jersey, and um, and New York, it's somewhere in between. And I did an interview once. Um, it was actually a television show hosted by Lynn Doyle, and the show was called "It's Your Call." It was on Comcast Television, and there were three segments that we did, and it was very difficult getting through it. I mean, it just there were another woman whose husband had killed himself in front of his kids, which is <gasps> god awful. I mean, I can't even imagine anybody would even do that. <sighs> and there were two psychologists on the show who did just this kind of work and they both said if you can talk to someone for 10 minutes you can normally talk them out of it talk them down i mean obviously there are going to be times that you can't but if you save one life then you've saved the whole universe so it's really really important to get this kind of help and you know people that that's despondent unfortunately can't always see through the darkness to realize that they're not alone and there's help out there for them. Um, you know, people suffer from depression and certain medications can cause suicidal tendencies. I and mean, there are a lot of reasons, you know, why this is such a horrific and prolific act. It's, it's at epidemic levels. And, um, you know, you really need help. It's a, it's a monster that needs to be pushed back. Yeah. Yeah, you were telling me a little bit about the statistics on this. Something like five million, no, one million suicides, over a million suicides around the world every year. 
There that are. Right? There, and the number keeps growing. There's more than a million people who take their life every year worldwide, leaving five million to mourn them. It's just count on average the survivors uh, of a family. You know, if you count even four people to to a surviving group, you're at five million people. And the statistics are just it's crazy. I mean, the attempts people who attempt to take their life who fail are 20 times greater than that number of a million. And we don't even know about the ones that aren't recorded. Um, fortunately, the 20-time number is not successful. Uh, in the military, one a day, which is really traumatic, and then among veterans, 22 veterans a day take their life. And that's just, that's horrible. And that's just the United States. Yes, it's just our armed forces. Wow. That's a ver- those are very scary statistics. They really um, are. And, you know, kids today are so vulnerable to peer pressure and bullying. And, you know, and it's, it's nonstop today. It's 24-7 with the advent of the Internet and computers and, and texting and everything. You can't get away from it. Um, you know, I really wish that kids would, would see the damage that they do to other people who... They criticize, and you know, and in a fashion that's nonstop. It's just cruel and inhumane, and completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. What are the other? What are the known risk factors for suicide? Well, the thing, the signs, for instance, that you'll see if someone becomes reclusive and they drop out of their social social circles that they've been so involved with for so long, and they just kind of become loners and they start to give their possessions away, things that really meant a lot to them over the years. When you see someone start to give their possessions away, saying, I don't, I don't care about anything, I don't care about this, but the biggest, the biggest flag is when someone says they're going to kill themselves. You have to take that seriously because mm-hmm. whether or not they say it just because it's something to say or they really mean it, there's a fine line there and you never really know. So, you know, my advice to people is be a little bit over zealous. If you hear someone say that, that you know, and you see some other signs, you know, if they're not going to call anybody, you call somebody for them. The worst you can do is embarrass and humiliate them, but you might save their life, you know, which is a much bigger um, benefit mm-hmm. than not doing anything. Okay. So you didn't have any clue about what was going on with Bruce that led to his suicide, but very often there are clues. People really look depressed or they start using drugs or you know that they're dealing with sexual confusion. Is that correct? That is correct. I mean, we didn't see any of those signs, though. And uh, I know those things are all, you know, they're all triggers. Um, I mean, the only thing that we did see was his Army Reserve unit was about to be shipped off to Vietnam. You know, and we used to think it was that, and maybe that had something to do with it because he kind of panicked about that. But Mm -hmm. logically, it doesn't make sense because if that were the case, there'd have been a way to keep him here, you know, instead of having him get shipped over. Yeah, suicide does not not seem to be very suicide doesn't seem to be very responsive to logic. (laughs) No, it's not, and it has no boundaries. It doesn't care about age. It doesn't care about gender. It doesn't care about color, race religion, it doesn't care about anything. You know, it, uh, it's going to attack whomever is susceptible. Uh-huh. What age groups would you say are most vulnerable? Well, there, 
that's kind of up for debate. Um, I would think that teenagers are the most vulnerable, and yet I've seen statistics of people who are widows or, or widowers um, who are also very susceptible, and age groups 75 and older, because, you know, there are people that suffer horrible physical ailments, and, you know, they get to a point in their life where there's just nothing left, um, and they're eaten away by some ravaging disease, and they just want to let go. And you know what? I don't blame them at that point. I mean, I am a suicide prevention advocate, but if that were me, I wouldn't want to see anybody suffer like that. I mean, you know, to become a vegetative state where there's no no therapy left, there's nothing that's going to bring them back, and they're just dying a slow, miserable, painful, unavoidable death. You know, that's that's just not that's yeah. not uh, that's not right. Yeah, if you're already dying, then having the opportunity to die with dignity at a time and in a way that you choose is really quite different from a teenager or somebody in their 20s just taking their own life because they're too frustrated or too depressed or whatever. Exactly. I agree completely. And, you know, I've seen people suffering like that. And it's like, God, that's... That's horrible. That is, I mean, you wouldn't let you wouldn't let your dog suffer like that. Why would you let someone that you love, who's a family member or a close friend, you know, have to go through that? Mm-hmm. And you know, that's what it comes down to. Um, my wife and I were on a on the Dr. Oz show several years ago. They had gotten wind of uh, the book, and I had written back and forth with them. And there were two sides of this audience. It was about suicide. Unfortunately, I did not get a chance to speak, but because uh, I would have loved to. But there was one side that was dead set against it, no matter what. You know, ailments, physical ailments, it didn't matter to them. And the other side was like, you know, we don't want to see anybody take their life, but if they're at that end stage of life where there's just nothing left, you know, as you said, with no dignity, then I think that's a different story. You know, and uh, I was hoping to get on on the air with him to, you know, show that I've got both sides of this, having lived through it, um, that I'm really, you know, not a proponent of suicide, but there are those situations and occasions where it's okay. Mm -hmm. I think we talked a little bit about when you started writing the book and putting it down for a while and coming back to it later and putting it down again. It sounds like it was maybe 25 years in the process of writing. Was it cathartic working on it? Or was it the opposite? Well, no, it was. It was cathartic. And, and, um, you know, for the first, I don't know how long um, I wrote this thing, and my wife kept saying, you know, don't do it if it's too painful. And I said, no, I have to do this. And she said, well, you know, I'm reading some of these chapters, and the one chapter on Bruce is great, but the rest of the book is, you're kind of like intellectualizing. And she said, and if I don't get it, your readers aren't going to get it. There's, I'm not feeling the emotion that, you, that you're trying to bring across on the pages. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go back and redo this and dig in and just let my emotions run rampant. And I did, and it, it made sense afterward. And, you know, she was my biggest critic and editor, and she said, and now this is good. I really get this. This is great. Um, and then it took a long time to get an editor, and I'm sorry, a publisher, because everybody said it was too personal. And I kept saying, yeah, you idiots, it is personal. That's yeah, what, what, other, what <laughs> other way could it be? Right, you missed the point, you know. So then I got friendly with an entertainment agent in Las Vegas who directed me to Nightingale Press, and she said, I think she'll get this. Talk to her, send her, you know, some chapters. So I did, I called her, and... We spoke, and she said, yeah, you know, I'd love to see it. It sounds like a great, great opportunity. So I 
sent, I think, maybe the whole book, the, the, the galleys that had the transcript, and um, didn't hear anything. So I called her about a week later and I said, did I make the cut? She said, you did. She said, we want to publish it, but we want you to rewrite it movie style. Well, all I heard was movie, and I said, okay, great. This is fabulous. And then I said, wait a minute, what's movie style? <laughs> I had no <laughs> idea. So she said, we want you to show it, not tell it. We want dialogue. So she said, I'm going to give you an editor who will show you how to do this. She won't tell you. She'll show you. And sure enough, she did. And she was a great editor. And in six weeks, I rewrote the book. And it came to life. And I realized what it had been missing. The, the characters were flat. So now, instead of being two-dimensional, it became three-dimensional. And when you read the dialogue, you hear the characters. You feel them. And it made sense. So that was something I became very proud of. And um, you know, it took the, those six weeks, but then we reformatted the book, and it came out. And everybody who's read it has said, "I feel like I know too much about your family." Uh, and you know, I feel kind of awkward. Um, I mean, it's great; it's a great read; it's inspirational. I laughed, I cried. Uh, I felt like I was right there with you, and I feel like I'm part of your family. And at times, other people would say, "I really feel sad that I missed your family; that I wasn't part of it." So, you know, to me, that was the greatest reward that I could have. That sounds really good. How did the other members of the family feel about this? Was it okay with them that you well, were yeah, revealing so much? Well, the only ones left were my mom and, and Alan, and they thought it was great. My mother was really proud, and I couldn't wait for her to read it, and she did. And it was very difficult for her to read. She'd have to read, you know, like a chapter or two at a time and then put it down and... She got through it, and she read it. She thought it was fabulous. She thought it was a wonderful homage to my father, my brother, and our whole family. And uh, she was it really made her proud, which made me feel even better. Oh, that's and great. my brother thought it was a great book. He thought it was terrific, too. Um, you know, and it, it ramps up a bunch of emotions when you read it. And, I mean, there are certain chapters that I can't even read aloud uh, because I'll lose it. Uh-huh. You know, time doesn't stop, but... The um, things that you keep in your in your heart and in your brain and, and you're on the motherboard, they're there for good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would think that there would be some profound sadness that just never goes away. Exactly. I mean, that's that's one of the things that uh, you know when I hear about someone else who's taken their life, or I, I you know, um, when Robin Williams took his life, mm-hmm. it you know it just. It starts all over again. I mean, you, you just you feel for the family, and you feel like, oh, you know, why did he do that? It's so much to live for. I mean, we know there were you know emotional complications, and he suffered uh, from the beginnings of Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease, and um, all these other extraneous factors that you don't see on the outside when someone's laughing and making other people laugh. And and I mean, it just that one struck home. Mm-hmm. Um, when you started writing the book, your children were very young. They're quite a bit older now. Um, does being, did being a father affect how you wrote the book or what you included in it? Oh, totally. Uh, because I wrote this, you know, thinking about our kids. And, you know, it was something that we didn't tell them about until they were at an age where we felt they could handle it and uh, where they wouldn't just, like, fall apart. But also at the same time, it was kind of like an insurance policy because we let them know that no matter what happens in their life, no matter what they do, no matter how horrific it might seem or how insurmountable, 
this is a situation where the odds that they may feel they can never overcome something, we will always be there for them to talk to. Nothing is worth taking your life. And there's always a better answer, a better way. And um, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And, you know, we let them know. At, at, because, you know, teenagers, teenagers, teenagers do funny things. They do stupid things. And, you know, they don't always think about it. So they need to be guided and they need, need to be assured and reassured that no matter what, we're there for them. And, um, you know, that just don't hold everything in. Okay. Talk, share it. Okay, we're going to take another short break now, and I will be back with Carl David discussing surviving suicide in a couple of minutes. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, co-parenting, or care of an elderly relative, there is a better way. Mediation. Save time, save money, and save your children. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, and I'm talking today with Carl David, who is the author of Bader Field. How My Family Survived Suicide. Now, this was not your first book, Carl. You had 
another book that's actually about the work that you do. And the work that you do was a family business. So it's all wrapped up with where your brother killed himself and how the family went on. Would you like to tell us a little about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, it was 1980 when I finished writing the first book. Actually, it got published in 1981. It was called Collecting and Care of Fine Art. Alan and I used to host these um, collector seminars, and we'd have groups of 50 to 100 people here, you know, kind of giving them information about the art market, how it worked, and, and you know, then we'd give them a tour of the gallery and show all the different paintings and talk about the artists and the pricing and why the prices were what they were. Because the art market's kind of complex, and it, it's, it's fascinating from the outside. It looks very uh, exciting and, and mysterious. Um, and I felt it was my obligation to share that knowledge with the American public. Um, so I wrote this book, Collecting and Care of Fine Art, which Crown published for me in New York, and it sold out. I mean, it was an edition of about 7,500. Um, it sold out, and, you know, I didn't do it for money. I didn't, I didn't really care about that. I did it to, to level the playing field so that consumers would, would know how and why the art market worked. And I got a lot of flack from colleagues um, who said, you know, how can you give them that information? And I kept saying, you know what, why not? I can put my head down at night. If you can't, that's your problem. But the family business has been since 1910 when my grandfather founded this. My father was in it from the time he got out of high school. My brother, after he got out of Wharton School, and Bruce was in it kind of in and out part-time. He really, it really wasn't his thing. My father was going to set up a frame shop on the fourth floor for him uh, because he was incredibly handy and could build anything and take anything apart. In fact, he took a car apart once and put it back together again, and it ran better. Um, so that never happened, but it was my father knew that he had that aptitude, and um, my father was my hero. He was incredible and also one of these people who could do anything and was an amazing inspiration. So I only had him here for three years before he passed away on a business trip in, in London. And um, then it was my brother and myself and, uh, and my mother, whom, ha- after having lost a son, loses her husband and kind of lost the will to live. But, you know, we kept instilling in her that we need her. So she would come here. Her sisters would come here, and it really became a, a family project all over again. And um, it was a little weird at first coming back to the gallery, you know, after my brother took his life. And when I came into the business in 1970 full-time, it took a while before I'd really want to go up to the fourth floor because I knew that's where he had taken his life. And I just, I didn't want to look at it. I, I, it, was, it was too traumatic and too painful. And eventually I went up there, and, um, you know, I was able to feel my feelings and, let the tears out, and just kind of live with it. Um, so I wrote Collecting Care of Fine Art, which, by the way, is being republished, um, and the revised edition is coming out with a new publisher, Skyhorse Publishing in New York. It's coming out in the fall of 2015 uh, with some updated information, and um, very happy it's coming out again because art is still such a fiery hot topic, and it's become a real commodity You know where people are spending a lot of money um, the auction markets are, you know, constantly publicizing record prices, and it's, it's an interesting business. No two days are ever the same. Sounds so, interesting. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I mean, my father once hosted a Baroque concert here that he bought from um, uh, Channel 12, which was the public television network, He for an evening, four hours, and he, he staged a Baroque painting exhibition at the same time. So we had Baroque music playing. And the exhibition of Baroque paintings, where he got all these things, I have no idea. 
uh, because they were pretty scarce even then. But we had about, you know, 100 people here, and it was, it was just quite extraordinary. Um, Sounds great. So then I moved on to the next book. I moved on to Baderfield after I lost my dad. I lost my brother uh, in the opposite order. And I've just signed a publishing deal with Motivational Press for a third book, which is called Waking Dreams, The Subtle Reality. And that's about episodes of synchronicity, and it's about signs and messages from the universe that I've had. And they're quite real. And, and some of the episodes of this book carry over from Bader Field. Um, I can give you an example, if you like, which is really kind of cool. We were at the cemetery burying my dad, and my father was a pilot, and the last plane he flew was a Piper Aztec that he owned. So we're at the cemetery, and it's a hot day in August, the sun's beating down, and all of a sudden I hear the sound of an airplane overhead. And I look up, and it was a Piper Aztec. I recognized that it wasn't that high off the ground. And I looked at my mother and my brother and my wife. We all looked at each other, and we nodded. We knew that he was free, and he was letting us know that he was okay. And it was, in a sense, a great relief to know that his spirit lives on. Um, I, I mean, I knew that anyhow because I had several other uh, episodes like that, you know, communications from him and from my brother. So it was very reassuring. And I really felt the need to put all this material into a book form to let people know that we're not alone. We may die, but our, our spirits and souls live on. And um, the communication is still there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the book we've been talking about the most today is Bader Field, How Your Family Survived Suicide. I have heard you say that you want to pay it forward. What is it that you're hoping to do? I want to take the darkest days of my life and do something good with them. Um, I want to reach out and I want to help other people. I want to guide them toward choosing to live instead of choosing to die. And I want to help families who have been through this because obviously I'm not the only one. And, you know, armed with this experience, I feel like I really want to do something good with it. So it'll, it's, it's kind of like, I'm not being an organ donor in a sense, but, you know, harvesting organs and giving them to someone who needs those, whose life it's going to save when, when someone's already died. So in a sense, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm taking um, the horrific experience that I lived through and survived and sharing that with other people. So, you know, I don't know who I might reach or who I won't reach. I don't need to know. It doesn't matter. But I know that I have reached people. Um, I've had emails from people after I do shows like this saying, Thank you so much for sharing your experience. I was really feeling kind of low and now realize that there's help out there and, and taking my own life would not solve anything and leave a horrible pall on the, on the surviving family members behind me. So what, that's really what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm aiming at the largest goals I can find and, you know, as I said before, getting the book into schools to make it mandatory reading, uh, not just in America but worldwide. And I know that's a very ambitious endeavor, but, um, you know, th- that's not going to stop me. And, uh, and, you know, having a film so people can, kids can see this and see what it does to a family and, and realize, hey, you know, there's a better way. I can go talk to somebody. I can get help. I'm not alone. You know, this is, this is not just my problem. I don't know what the answer to this question is. Have you had the opportunity to talk with some people who attempted suicide or thought very seriously about suicide and didn't do it and then were glad that they stayed around? I actually have. 
I've spoken to some people um, who had had, you know, if not an attempt, they were thinking about it. And after talking with them, um, they confided in me that, you know, they had thought about this several times. And, you know, after seeing my experience and talking with me, they actually felt better about themselves and about their lives and um, said that they would, would, they would not do that. You know, that, and that, that is probably the, the greatest reward I could ever reap from talking to somebody, you know, and, and, and helping them. Um, as I said before, you know, when you save a life, you save the universe entire. And that's, you know, that's something that comes out of the, the, um, the Torah, but it was also something from Schindler's List. And it's something that's always stuck in my mind. Um, do I wish that I, I kind of feel sometimes like I, I, I should have reached out farther. I could have saved somebody else. And, you know, that's always in me as well. So it motivates me to keep going and, and keep trying to reach out to people and, knowing somewhere that I have helped. And, and again, mm-hmm. whether I hear it or I don't hear it, it doesn't matter. But when I do hear it, it just, it's, it's everything that you could dream of. Mm-hmm. So let's suppose that there are people listening today who say, I would really like to have a copy of this book. It sounds like a very good book to have. Where would they get one? Um, it's available through Amazon. And it's all avail- also available in 60 different digital markets worldwide um, in the Apple iBook store for download, um, Kindle, Nook, Kobo. And, and, I mean, if you do a search for Baderfield by Carl David, it'll come up in, in a myriad of places. Um, I think the download is like, you know, maybe 2 or $3 now. Um, had been seven ninety nine when it was first done electronically. But um, the soft copy book is available, and I think it's sixteen ninety five. Although on Amazon it may be less than that. Um, and the, the soft copy book is great because you can actually—I like something I can hold in my hand um, more than just a device. I like—I like the tactile feel of pages, and I like seeing the pictures in the book because there are some some neat illustrations in the book. Um, pictures of our family, pictures of Bader Field, the airplane. And uh, pictures of my dad, and myself, and um, there's a, pain, a painting. Uh, sorry, I'm a painting dealer. <laughs> it gets the best of me sometimes. Uh, there's a picture of Bruce in his in his army uniform, and uh, which is very powerful. So he was in the army. Yes, okay. he was in the army I reserves, see. and um, you know this was at a time when when you, the Vietnam War was in full swing, and um, it just you know. You, you, would see these pictures of kids coming back in body bags and parts missing and uh, it was awful and for what you know um, to get shunned when they came back I mean you know the way the military was treated was disgusting it was just dis- disgraceful these guys put their lives on the line for us and they're, they're you know they looked at with a jaundiced eye it was horrible it was horrible in many ways yes it was yeah we have just about a minute or so left, just about a minute. Are there any last thoughts that you want to be sure to mention to people? Yeah, if you're depressed or you're despondent or you're thinking about even in a random way taking your life, you know, don't do it. Go, talk to somebody. Talk to a family member. Talk to a priest, a rabbi, a doctor, a hospital. Call 911. Call somebody. Call a friend. Go to a bar, have a drink, and, and talk to a bartender and, and spill your guts. I mean, you really need to let these demons out, these feelings, um, you know, that you're not going to make it through tomorrow or something's coming up or something horrible happened. And, and just don't, don't internalize it. 
please just go out and call somebody, get some help. I mean, it's a big world out there. Nobody's going to judge you. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's just a tragic waste of life um, that is a gift to begin with. I mean, we get up every day, and every day is a gift. So you've got to live it to the fullest and enjoy it. Okay. So if you're feeling terrible, you're thinking about ending your life, you can't see the solution, talk to somebody else because maybe they can. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. There's always somebody out there to help you. Okay. You're not alone. Thank you very much for being on the show, Carl David. I think maybe you've helped a lot of people tonight. Well, I hope so. Thank you, Virginia. I really appreciate you having me on. And uh, I'm reachable. Uh, my website is www.carledavid, that's C-A-R-L-E-D-A-V-I-D.com. Okay. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow. We'll be right back. 